This past week, I was driving home, and I, I came up on a situation where there was a bit of a traffic backup, and so I was trying to figure out what happened. I was on a county road, and there appeared to be a car who had gotten off into a ditch. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, these guys have, must have hit a, an ice patch or something. They've, they've slid off and have to figure out how to get out. Usually that's uh, what happens in the winter. You see somebody in the ditch, they've, they've hit a spot of black ice, and all of a sudden they're in trouble. But as I got closer, I realized this was a different situation. They'd found a different way to get into a ditch. It was actually a box truck that had been in somebody's driveway and had backed out of it and had just kept backing out and had backed out too far, had gone off the road and sort of bottomed out into this deep ditch. So I'm driving up and there are these guys all bundled up and their faces are so red, I'm feeling really terrible for them. Uh, and, but they're trying to figure out how to get this thing out, right? And so I, I have two thoughts as I'm sorting, sort of starting to, to drive up. And the one is just a recognition of the brutal cold and the brutal task these guys had. And I was really glad the heat in my car was working and I didn't have to figure out what they had to figure out that day. Maybe I should have stopped and helped them, but I didn't. And the second thing that I thought was I've, I'd never thought about getting a, a truck stuck in a ditch that way. I'd always thought, well, you get in the ditches when you're driving too fast around a curve or something and it's icy and you weren't paying close enough attention. It was a different way of getting in the ditch than what I had thought about previously. And in a similar kind of way, I think this passage in 1 Timothy 5 is like the truck finding a new way to get into the ditch. This passage tells us there's a way to get into the ditch spiritually. It says there's a way that we can deny Christ, deny the gospel with our actions, with our relationships, not merely with our beliefs. You see, we, we often think of denying the gospel, we think of apostasy as something that's mostly theological, that we deny maybe the virgin birth or one of these core tenets of the faith, and that's what it means to deny the gospel. But the passage is telling us you can actually deny the faith with relationships that lack beauty, that aren't shaped by the gospel. So let me give you the main idea of how we want to say that and then take some time to explain it. Here, here's the main idea of what I want you to hear this morning. Genuine faith in Jesus must produce beautiful relationships. Genuine faith in Jesus must produce beautiful relationships. Now, the earlier parts of 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ and what genuine faith looks like. I hope your copy of God's Word is open. It's maybe at the back half of the book, but if you'll flip up just a little bit to chapter 1 and verse 15, you see at the beginning the way Paul is defining the gospel and what genuine faith looks like. Here's in chapter 1 and verse 15, and I hope you'll follow along in your copy with me. Here's what it says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." pause for just a second, I'll read verse 16 in a minute. Recognize this letter is written near the end of Paul's life. He's not a brand new Christian, and the longer he's been a Christian, the clearer picture of his own sin he's gained. He's been a Christian for decades at this point, and says, I'm the foremost of sinners, not just kind of a bad guy, not just the bottom of the food chain in the church. I'm the worst of the sinners, the chief of sinners, another passage says. As he grows in godliness, he sees his sin more clearly. We continue in verse 16. Here's what he writes. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
It says, this is the gospel. I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus came, showed mercy to me. And if he can save me, then he can save anybody. He says, it's critical you get that right. And he's been explaining that throughout the whole book so far. And now he's starting to say, here's how you live that out. Just on the way into church this morning, uh, I had a funny story that sort of illustrated this. We pulled into the parking lot, and of course, in the parking lot, if you've paid attention at all, you know there's uh, the spots where the cars flip up the snow onto the bottom of the, whatever's right behind the tire, whatever that's called, and then it gets really dirty, and it's slushy, and then it freezes, and then eventually it falls off, and there's these big clumps of what used to be snow, and is now just a big clump of dirt packed together by the ice. We saw those in the parking lot, and my daughter looked at me, and she said, Dad, did you know that snow can look like poop? (laughs) She looked over at it and saw that. And in an interesting sort of way, that's what Paul was saying. We can look at ourselves and think, oh, I look kind of like snow. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm pure. But at the core of us is a deep heart of sin that doesn't look nearly as good as we want to think that it looks. Paul's saying, this is at the core of Christian faith, that you no longer say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good woman. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I've got my flaws. We begin to say, no, 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 I'm a lot worse, even on my best day, than I ever thought I was. And I need the mercy of Jesus Christ. And praise God, the mercy of Jesus, if it's strong enough to save Paul who killed Christians, it's strong enough to save you too. Praise be to God. This is what Paul has been describing so far up through this book. And when we come to chapter 5, He's saying, now that truth of the gospel, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, mercy strong enough to save sinners, must be lived out like this. Here's what it must produce, beautiful relationships. In other words, relational beauty isn't just a nice thing to pursue, something that we hope comes along the way. It's actually a necessity. And God says that by forsaking relational beauty, That's an indicator we've actually forsaken the gospel. Even if you can still rattle off a whole bunch of Bible verses, even if you know the doctrinal statements and the Nicene Creed by heart, it says, no, relational beauty is essential. Now, let me show you in the passage where that says that, because that's a pretty big claim for me to make. And last week, we saw that all of chapter 5 through the first two verses of chapter 6 sort of go together. It's like one unit of thought. And so I'm going to pull from both sections to see this same idea coming through. Here's what we see. Chapter 5, verse 8. This is what we covered last week, but it still informs the whole meaning of the passage. This. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Is relational beauty essential, not optional? Or look down at chapter 6 and verse 1. You see a similar idea being communicated. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that... The name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That word, the teaching, there refers to the the gospel, the core teaching of Christianity. That by failing to show relational beauty, these bondservants could revile the name and character of God and the gospel itself. Huge urgency Paul's placing here. And then chapter 6 and verse 2, the very last phrase, it might even be in the next paragraph of your Bible, but still verse 2 says this, teach and urge these things. Teach and exhort. Teach and encourage these things. Teach and impress these things upon the people. Don't merely lay them out and say, here are a few good ideas. That's what teaching does. Urging, encouraging, exhorting, impressing says, highlight the urgency. See the necessity. This isn't an optional add-on. As a Christian, this must follow. 
And so this relational beauty that we're talking about, we recognize is totally unnatural to us. Because relational beauty flows out of selflessness, does it not? Selflessness produces really beautiful relationships. But by our nature, we're selfish. And that's the problem. It's our selfishness is like a cancer that runs deep in our bones. And we look at ourselves and act like it's some dirt under our fingernails. And if we just get one of those scrubbers and scrub hard enough, then we can make ourselves no longer selfish. And God's saying, no, 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 you don't need a better scrubber. You need a totally different treatment that goes into your heart, makes you a new person, and then it works itself out from there. And 1 Timothy 5 is like a bone scan where it says, now let's take a look at yourself and see, is the treatment actually working? Are you being made new by the gospel? And if that treatment is working, then we're going to see a few results. And one of them is a beautiful set of relationships. And Paul gives three examples of what those beautiful relationships could look like. The first example he gives was what we covered last week, the example of widows, where we're called to honor those who are vulnerable. And Pastor Casey nicely explained and prayed other ways we could honor the vulnerable in addition to widows. But 1 Timothy chapter 5 focuses on widows. And the second example that Paul gives, and we'll talk about it here in a few minutes, is how you treat pastors, how we honor those who are in authority. Different kind of honor for the vulnerable versus those in authority, but still important to honor. And then the third example is the example of bond servants and how they would honor those who simply are not worthy of honor. Now, you notice the little description there starts with the word honor, and I need your help on something here. I want you to kind of talk back to me while we do this. It's a little bit different than our normal mechanism, but look at verse 3 of chapter 5, and I want to ask you a question, and I want everyone to answer in unison. What is the first word of 1 Timothy 5.3? Honor. Now, look at verse 17 with me. And I'm going to read. I'm going to pause. I want you to read that word again. Elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. And then the next section, chapter 6 and verse 1, regard these masters as worthy of all honor. So you see the same word being applied in each of the examples, and that's what's linking the whole passage together. And if you look at the slide here, it's just so interesting to think about how our culture views these kinds of honor, because modern culture loves the first one, honor those who are vulnerable, Honor those who are oppressed. Honor those who have suffered from systemic injustice. Fight for their rights. Protect them. And our culture looks at the second as sort of a, you know, a happy-go-lucky, bygone era where it's leave it to beaver. And oh, yes, I remember when my grandparents honored those in authority. They honored pastors. Maybe, maybe you've heard them say, yeah, you honor the man of the cloth, and he sort of is, is a good guy in town. And, and our culture looks at that as like not necessarily a, a terrible thing, but just, yes, that's, that's the older traditional way, and we've moved on from that. And our modern culture looks at the third, to honor those who are not worthy of honor, and they despise it. It's absolutely despicable. Those who are not worthy of honor must be punished. Those who have been the perpetrators, those who have been the oppressors, there's no honor to be had. There's no forgiveness to be had. We must slam the door, throw them to the side, and move on. And so we recognize in looking just at very briefly at how our culture looks at these things that the scriptures will affirm certain aspects of every culture, like it's good to honor those who are vulnerable. And at the same time, the knife cuts both ways, and scripture will confront certain aspects of a culture that are difficult to see, and Scripture says, no, this culture must be brought into conformity with the Scriptures, and you must learn to see this a little bit differently. 
Let me give you one final warning before we jump into a a bit of an outline here. This passage can read a little bit like a to-do list. And if you read it that way, I think we're reading it wrongly. Because what the passage is getting at is what is at the heart of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. And that's why I take a few minutes here to explain from 1 Timothy 1.15, saying it's trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, what this message of the gospel is and what genuine faith looks like and how that leads to where we are in chapter 5. You've got to get the flow right. It's not just go and do better. It's look inward and see where is my heart being shaped by the gospel? Where does it need to be shaped by the gospel? And how do I look to the gospel for the power to live this out? All right, so th- today what we're going to do is look at the second and third examples. Uh, we start with example two, that of pastors, where Paul calls for honoring those who are in authority. Now, certainly this is not a natural thing in a Western individualistic culture, an anti-institutional age we're in, that's not normal. But let's not pretend like honoring those in authority is merely a cultural thing. Like, none of us at any point in our life think it's a great thing to submit to somebody else's rules, somebody else telling us what to do. We want to be the master of our own fate. We want to be the captain of our own soul. We want to do what we want to do. What Paul's saying is genuine faith in Jesus results in a fundamentally different way of relating to authority. He starts by talking about honoring pastors. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. Here's what he says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul lists two functions of a pastor there, that he rules well, You might say he exercises oversight or authority and that he teaches. This is the exact same thing in chapter 5. He said in chapter 3, you'll recall chapter 3, he talked about managing his own household well so that he could manage the household of God well. He's ruling well, exercising oversight. And then 1 Timothy 3 says he must be able to teach. Same thing here in chapter 5. But the focus here is on highlighting the importance of proclaiming the gospel. That's why in Romans chapter 10, it says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's as if Paul's saying, yes, good deeds are important, but proclaiming the very message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is most important. He tells Timothy that all pastors should be honored, but those who rule well should be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The word honor that's used there carries a twofold meaning, one of respect and one of financial compensation. And you look at different ways it's used in the ancient world, and sometimes it means respect, sometimes it means financial compensation, and Paul says, hey, double honor. See, both of those. Park said, I just want to stop right here and commend you in this way. You honor pastors well. As a church, I praise God for his spirit working in you, for the grace of God working itself out in your lives. Through faithful giving, you provide for staff pastors like myself and others to be able to make a living wage and provide for our families. And yes, I understand that you're not giving to me or to any other pastor. You're giving as worship to the Lord, but it also honors pastors who labor in preaching and teaching God's word. And I want to commend you in this way. There's churches all over the land where that's not the case. And I praise God for his spirit at work in your hearts here. It's good to see obedience and recognize it, not as a thing to be puffed up about, but to say, Lord, thank you for the way you are working in the lives of this group of people. And it's not just the financial side. Park said, I see you honoring pastors well when it talks about respecting pastors. 
speaking well of pastors, honoring them in that way. It's, it's somewhat common. People, new people will come to the church and say, well, pastor, you know, how many, how many of those angry emails a week do you get? I'm sure it's really difficult trying to dig through your inbox on Monday. And I have the wonderful privilege of saying to folks when they ask about that, say, boy, I am so sorry that's been your experience somewhere else, but that simply doesn't happen here at Parkside. People raise questions about things every now and again, but those angry emails, I can't tell you the last time I got one of those. And it's not like there's nothing to complain about. I'm a flawed man, and we got a whole bunch of flawed men around here, and flawed women too, for that matter. But as Pastor Mark Vrogop said over at College Park Church, I love how he said this, it's a mark of spiritual maturity to be easily edified. You don't have to have the best preacher in all the world to be edified spiritually. You don't have the best leader in all the world to be edified spiritually. And Park said, I see the grace of God in your life, and I thank you for that, and I praise God for that. But as we're saying that, I do think it's important that we pause here and we honestly reflect on the difficulty of this passage. Because bestowing double honor is never going to be an easy thing to do. By the grace of God, we hope to excel here, but it's always hard. And some Christians will be tempted to maybe speak well of pastors, but not give, and therefore not honor them financially. And other Christians may be more prone to give generously, but not speak well of pastors, whether publicly or privately, thus not honoring them in that way. And anybody who's been at this for a while knows that while pastors are called to be examples, none of them are the Messiah. And so if you're looking for a flaw, you're going to be able to find it in one way or another. And so to honor pastors, those in authority, is a supernatural work. It requires genuine faith and a heart that has been changed. And as we talk about relational beauty, what we can understand is there is great relational beauty in a church that honors pastors, that speaks well of them that honors them financially. And I'm sure you can think of another church maybe you've been at or you know someone who's been at that hasn't been that way. And you know how ugly it is and how discouraging it is and how divisive it is. And you say, oh, there's not relational beauty in that way. You see this undergirding principle comes up in how we honor pastors. And some of you are listening. You say, pastor, I, I see what you're saying in the passage. I understand how you're explaining it. But don't you know about the bad pastors, like the really bad ones? What do we do about them? Well, yes, I do know about them, and so does God. And that's why verse 19 comes next. So let's look at it together. Here's what it says. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. You see, Paul gives instruction not just in honoring pastors, but the next section here is in disciplining pastors. Paul says pastors aren't exempt from rebuke, even publicly public rebuke. He says this is necessary at times. And it might be the sins of laziness or sins of immorality, sins of gluttony or pride or greed or any number of things. And Paul says, no, we're to take this very seriously. These things cannot, they must not be tolerated anywhere in God's church and especially not from her pastor's. The reference to a public rebuke causing others to fear seems to be a reference to church discipline, saying even pastors aren't above church discipline. They are sheep before they are shepherds, in a sense. 
They're members of the church before they are pastors of the church. And so what Paul seems to be saying is his pastoral ministry has a sort of a two-edged sword to it. On the one edge, the pastors are worthy of double honor, and the other edge that cuts the other way is there's a greater judgment, a closer scrutiny coming from the Lord to pastors. You might think of James chapter 3 and verse 1 that says the following, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater scrutiny. It's the same principle being outlined. Or Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 actually puts both edges of the sword into a single verse. On the honor side, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. And on the greater scrutiny side, as those who will have to give an account to the Lord. And so here's a charge both to pastors and to congregations to take seriously, take seriously sin in the lives of the pastors and in the whole church. And as Paul outlines that, he gives a few warnings. He says, yes, the Lord will judge with greater scrutiny, but congregation, be cautious in bringing these charges. And I see four cautions, four warnings he lays out. And if you just look down, you see first, it should be observed by two or three witnesses. It's not just one person had a, a strange interaction, it felt off. No, this should be observed by two or three. And then he says that if someone persists in sin, as if there's been a confrontation, and then the pastor persists in sin, not just in something that's a little annoying, not just in failing to brush his teeth and he's got coffee breath, but actual sin in the matter. If he persists in sin, notice that. So look for both persistence and sin. And then before he comes to the next two warnings, he pauses and says, oh, and take note, by the way, lest you rush quickly into judgment, God is watching and Jesus is watching, and the elect angels are watching. So be careful, because when you're driving down the road and you see the police officer there, you check your speed just a little bit, don't you? That's what Paul's saying. Hey, check your speed here on this, because God's watching and so is Jesus. And you say, the elect angels, what exactly does that mean? Well, he's referring to the time when Satan was a good angel in heaven. He rebelled against God, left, and many angels left with him, but the majority stayed and were faithful to God. And he's saying, yes, the angels who've been faithful to continue honoring God as God are also watching. And he calls them elect angels because we know that God is sovereign over all things, including which angels would remain faithful to him. After the little check your speed, there's a police officer there warning. He comes to the third and the fourth warnings. He says, make sure you don't prejudge anyone and don't operate with partiality. You wonder why those two are put together. I think of it as kind of like this. Don't prejudge anybody, especially pastors. There are certain pastors that you're more likely to distrust, right? Maybe he's, he's too young and doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe he's too old and he's one of the good old boys that maintains the establishment. Maybe he's not from around here and he doesn't know what it's like for us. You're tempted to prejudge that guy for a whole host of reasons. Paul says, no, no, don't do that. Give him a fair chance. Watch his life. Watch his teaching. Don't make prejudgments on the guys you distrust. There's a, a ditch to avoid there. And on the other side, he says, but don't operate with partiality either because there's guys you are going to have a proclivity towards trusting too much. They're your guy. They care about the issues you care about. The way they operate resonates more deeply with you. And you're going to be tempted to cover up his sin. You're going to be tempted to not hold him accountable because, well, he's kind of one of our guys. He's in our tribe. And Paul says, look out for both ditches. There's guys you're prone to distrust, guys you're prone to trust, 
and recognize don't prejudge anyone and don't operate with partiality. If I think of the guys you're more likely to trust, you think, well, covering for them is kind of a thing of loyalty. Look at all they've done through the years. And while loyalty to that man might feel like a good thing, disloyalty to God is a worse thing. So be loyal to God before you're loyal to anyone else. Paul's saying there's relational beauty in taking sin seriously. And anyone who suffered abuse at the hands of the church, or particularly a pastor, will tell you there is a not vindictive way a not vindictive way to show relational beauty and taking sin seriously. You try and cover that up, sweep it under the rug, that's one of the ugliest things you'll ever see in the life of the church. But on the other side, there's relational beauty and not rushing to judgment and being patient and not judging a book by its cover. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy that all should see his progress. That means he wasn't perfect in the first place. And it took a patient church to see him make progress. And in both scenarios, there's a ditch, but there's also beauty to be had when the church has changed hearts and follows Jesus as he calls them to. That's how we're to discipline pastors. And Paul continues then into verse 22, he talks about installing pastors. Some might say ordaining pastors. Look back at your copy of God's word. Here's what it says. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This is verse 22. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So if you track the logic of what Paul's been saying here, he says, on the one hand, pastors are to be honored. That was the first part. And then they're also to be disciplined when it's appropriate. So therefore, go slowly in the laying on of hands, because this is a weighty, weighty matter. He says, first, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And then he kind of goes on and says, well, over time, their character will bear itself out and we'll see the true character emerging. And sometimes it just takes a little while for that thing to cook. Now, we're installing two younger men as pastors here today at the conclusion of our service. I want you to know, we've talked about this previously, but to say it from the pulpit, both of these brothers that we're installing, they have expressed to us years ago, five years ago, the desire to be pastors. And so we've been, in a sense, a pastoral training process for five-plus years. It's trying to go slow, seeing the work of the Spirit in their lives, seeing the sanctifying process, and seeing, yes, we affirm the gift that's in you. We're fanning into flame the gift of God. In a sense, you might say that growth in spiritual maturity is like a smoked brisket. It takes time. So go slow and start early. That's what it means for us as a church. Yeah, it recognizes it's going to take time. So go slow and start really early. And if we can just pause here and think about what this means for us, for our kids at Parkside. Kids, I especially want you to listen up here. What does it look like for you to be trained in godliness and in ministry service? Think about Daniel for just a moment, would you? Daniel, when he was deported to Babylon, was probably in middle school. Imagine you as a middle schooler here, or a high schooler, are carried off to Palestine, and you're enrolled in the Hamas Training Institute. That's pretty scary stuff to think about. That's what it was like for Daniel when he was 14. 
Now, church, as you're listening in on this conversation, how would that change your discipleship of Daniel at age 6, 8, 10, and 12, knowing that that's what's going to be required of him at age 14? Of course, we have no idea what's coming for our kids at age 14, but it tells us it's critical that we take seriously discipleship, training them in godliness, giving opportunity to serve. Or you think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably in middle school, perhaps early high school, when she finds out, oh yes, by the way, you're not going to be able to finish your sophomore year in school right now because, you know, Jesus is inside of you. Like, that's an unexpected message, right? You imagine how weighty that would be, young ladies? And parents, how would we think about discipling her at age 6 and 8 and 10 and 12 to prepare her to step into that role at that time? Discipleship of the next generation is going to take time, so we must start early, be intentional, and go slow. Kids, I recognize when we talk about you stepping into a a way to serve in ministry, in a whole host of ways, I even look up and I see students serving up in the tech booth, and I love it. That's scary for you. You talk about teaching a lesson maybe in kids' church. That's terrifying. I get that. And adults, I, I get this too. It's a little scary to trust kids with like real stuff that actually matters because they might mess it up. Let me just correct that last statement. They, they will mess it up. Guys, it's okay when you mess up. We love to have you involved and learning to serve because you learn by doing And when you stumble a little bit, that's when you learn the best. And so we praise God for the opportunity to give you these things. And to all of us, I want us to hear, it is so worth it that we take the time to give responsibility to younger people and let them learn and learn and learn. I will remember this clearly. I think my parents crushed it in this, and I'm so thankful for them. I remember being 10 years old. We were going out to visit some people who were new to the church, and uh, we're walking up the sidewalk, and my dad looks at me and says, hey, you're doing the talking this time. These are people I've never met, adults, 6.30 at night, and I was scared spitless. But looking back, I praise the Lord that he said, you know what, this is a good opportunity, son, for you to step into that, for him to, him to have the forethought to realize, you know, this might be a little awkward to knock on the door and people have only come to the church one time, and a little 10-year-old kid is doing the greeting. We realize it's going to take time, so we start early. And we go slow. And over time, that intentional discipleship pays off in huge and huge ways. Kids, there's one other thing I want you to hear in this passage. Because in this section, it talks a lot about godliness. It talks a lot about the importance of putting sin to death. Kids, it is so important right now in the second grade, the third grade, the fourth grade, the fifth grade, you learn to put sin to death. Absolutely critical. In your attitudes towards your parents and your teachers putting sin to death in your words towards your siblings, putting sin to death in laziness with your homework. Because it doesn't just naturally go away when you get older. It just gets a lot uglier. And it hurts more people. I heard it said this way, and if, if you're taking notes, this would be so good to write down. Sin always hides the price tag. Sin always hides the price tag. You don't realize what it's going to cost you. You think, I can afford that shirt. That looks like a $20 sin per se. And it's $150. Oh my gosh, I don't have the money for that. It cost me far more than I thought it would. So kids, learn to put sin to death today. And parents, be like the kids and put sin to death to, to death today as well. 
There's one comment I skipped over in the passage, and maybe you were wondering if I would deal with it, where Paul says to Timothy, hey, don't just drink water, but take some wine as well to help with your stomach and frequent ailments. What in the world is going on there? Well, if you were hoping that we would get into a big argument about whether Christians can drink beer or not because of that, I think you're mistaken. That's not the point at all of what is trying to be made here. I think there's two major points to make. One's One's expected, one's unexpected. Here's the unexpected point to make. Some people say that the New Testament that we have was not actually written in the first century. It was this like hundreds of years later, guys came back and wrote it, and it can't be trusted for that reason. Statements like this one actually prove the reliability of the New Testament in amazing ways. Because as Paul is writing to Timothy, you see a friend that he has a deep connection with. He cares deeply about his sickness, and he's telling him about how to install pastors. And then, by the way, he's like, oh, Timothy, I know how sick you've been. Here's something to help out with it. He just kind of inserts it. It's like conversational. If you're writing something 300 years later, this is exactly the thing you wouldn't find there. Here's evidence for the reliability. Yeah, this really was written by a real guy, Paul, who knew a real guy, Timothy, who pastored a real church in Ephesus and who was really sick on a regular basis. Okay, that's the unexpected thing. That you're like, oh, that's, that's interesting there. Second thing, I want you to picture Timothy, growing church in Ephesus, younger pastor, striving for holiness, regularly getting sick, discouraged by this because there's so much he wants to do. Maybe that's you. Maybe not you're a younger pastor, but there's so much you want to do for God and so much you want to do for your family, and you keep bumping into these physical ailments. Maybe you're younger, maybe you're middle-aged, maybe you're older. Maybe it's a chronic thing. Maybe you're pregnant and you've been kind of kicked to the curb, per se, by this little one who's eating you alive, it seems. And here you have a pastor, Timothy, who says, I get what that's like. I understand. Stay at it. And you have an older St. Paul coming along in tangible ways, writing a letter of encouragement and saying, Timothy, here's something you can do to help out with that. Let me come alongside you in tangible ways and help you grow in godliness. This thing doesn't have to keep you down. I'm here to labor with you. Now, when you start to read it that way, isn't that a beautiful thing to see relationally? This intergenerational discipleship where the older comes alongside the younger and says, yes, let me encourage you in the Lord and pray for you. And let me write you notes and letters to encourage you to keep going. And let me see the challenges you're facing. And let me find tangible ways to come alongside. Like, yes, I want to be part of that, right? There's relational beauty in this intergenerational discipleship. Sometimes it leads to installing pastors, But on the whole, it's just a culture of discipleship where it's regular for us to come alongside others and help them learn to follow Jesus. It's a beautiful picture we get here. That sort of wraps up this section on honoring pastors and how it shows relational beauty and how we honor, discipline, and install them. And then Paul moves to the next example, the beginning of chapter 6, relating to bondservants. It's kind of a sharp pivot here. So before I go in and read, let me remind you what we've been saying just so we kind of catch the picture. Relational beauty must flow out of genuine faith in Jesus. It's not optional. And Paul's given a couple of examples. Recall the example of widows, the example of how we treat pastors, and now there's an example given to bond servants, all illustrating the larger point of how essential relational beauty is. Here's what we read, chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
teach and urge these things. Now, maybe you look at your Bible and you see that last little teach and urge these things in the next paragraph down, and you're wondering what's going on with that. We know that when we see these things, it refers to prior teaching. We talked about that all the way through chapter 4. These things, like the things I just told you, teach them, urge them, impress them on people. So why does the ESV have it in the next paragraph? Here's the short answer. I don't know. Some of the other translations, the New American Standard, for example, puts it up in the prior paragraph, and I think it's more helpful there. I actually don't know why it's there, but we do know that it's referring to the things that have come before. We know it's referring to this theme of the beautiful relationships. And for a bondservant, here's why it's particularly challenging. They're called to honor these masters because they are suffering under oppression. And that's really, really difficult for anyone in any season of life. A bondservant's not a word we use frequently. What does that mean? Well, the, the original Greek word shows up about 150 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it says slave as the translation, sometimes it says servant. It's often referred, uh, it refers to Christians. You're slaves of Christ. You're bound to Christ. You're bondservants of Christ. This context is a little bit different, though, where we know in the Roman world, slavery was employed in a wicked, wicked way. Not exactly like American slavery, but still an evil practice. And that's what Paul has in view here, because in verse 1, he says those who are under a yoke of slavery. Now, in an agricultural setting, under a yoke means what you do to the oxen, right? For those who are under a yoke, those who are being treated as animals, is what Paul, in essence, is saying. And what he's not doing here, catch this, he's not giving counsel on how we reverse social inequalities or systemic injustice. He's not looking at the macro picture and saying, here's the political solution to all of this. What he is doing is he's zeroing in on the micro situation. He's looking at individual believers. He's giving instruction on how do you show the beauty of the gospel when you're under suffering and oppression. And he says, how do I proceed basically if my master is unbelieving, verse 1, and what do I do if my master is believing in verse 2? So let me start with the believing master in verse 2. It seems on the one hand that Paul should condemn this practice and say, unbelieving master, or believing master rather, to be faithful to Christ, set these brothers free, don't have bondservants anymore. That's not what Paul says. We're not entirely sure of the legal system and why exactly that was. But I think if we look at one of Paul's other letters to the same church in Ephesus, we can start to connect the dots and see what the whole picture looks like. Previously, Paul had written the book of Ephesians, and he speaks specifically to the masters in chapter 6 and verse 9. Here's what he says to them. Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Here what he says to the masters. You guys are acting wickedly. Knock it off. God's watching you too. He sees. Treat these guys as equals. Be fair to them. Don't be threatening. Don't berate them. And what seems to have happened between the letter of Ephesians and the letter of 1 Timothy is that the believing masters have changed. Praise the Lord. That's great news. They start to walk in obedience. And now that they're being kind, not threatening, they're being gracious and not overbearing, the bondservants are saying like, well, if you're not going to be nasty to me, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to work hard for you. You tell me to do something, I can spit in your face, whether literally or proverbially. I've got more freedom here. I've got more latitude. So you go back to verse 2, and it seems that Paul is now speaking to the bondservants. 
Here's what he says. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Paul seems to be saying this is no longer an oppressive relationship. Legally, that was protected. That would have been okay in a Roman legal sense, but it's not that way anymore in the church. Praise the Lord. That's better. Good news. But now the bondservants are taking it and going in the wrong direction as well. And what Paul is doing, he's calling both the, the master and the bondservant to relational beauty. Treat one another better than you're required to. To both of you, and it looks different in both contexts. Then he looks to the unbelieving master, the wicked person, hardened in his ways, and gives some counsel. Here's what he says in verse 1. This is, again, to the bondservant who's under a wicked, unbelieving master. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He doesn't say the master is worthy of honor. In fact, we know the master isn't worthy of honor. But he says, regard him as worthy of all honor, even though he doesn't. This is a shocking statement. You imagine getting together with somebody at Starbucks who's got an, I mean, not just a bad boss, like a wicked, unjust, cruel boss. And here's your counsel to your fellow member of Parkside Bible Church. Regard your boss as worthy of all honor, even though he's a complete scumbag. Now let's carry on with our day. You're going to look back and say, are you serious, man? It's like, go get a new job. Go do something else. Find a way to bring it to light and reveal what's going on. It's a shocking statement if we think about it. And the point is that genuine faith in Jesus is what changes your heart to be able to proceed in unjust circumstances. It's not the kind of effort that you can drum up with white knuckle, try hard, go get them. You can do it with a spiritual kind of lipstick on the pig, as it were. And Paul goes so far as to say, if we fail to respond in this way, we risk reviling the name and character of God and the gospel itself. And I think it's easy for some of us, especially those who have not suffered greatly, to read this and to kind of move on quickly, to not grasp the significance of what's there. But for those of you who have suffered greatly, especially at the hands of wicked, wicked people, this may feel impossible. Because you read this, and your question, you say, Pastor, how can I regard that person as worthy of all honor? How do I not hate that person? How do I not speak evil of that person? How do I, like Jesus, say, forgive them, for they know not what they do? How is that supposed to happen? It's a great question. It's a difficult question. I want to kind of land the plane on the whole sermon here with two ways to answer that that I think gets the core of this message of this passage. And the first is by showing you a different passage in the Bible, and the second is by telling you a story, both that I think make the exact same point when you say, I've suffered immensely at the hands of wicked people. How do I show relational beauty when in my own heart I have no ability to do that? Here's the first. Let's start with the scriptures. Look at the screen. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this end you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, at the core of it is is verse 23 there that says you're entrusting yourself to one who judges justly. I trust that the Lord will be the just ruler of all the universe. And only in seeing his body bearing the wounds for my sin can I be freed from pursuing all justice on my own. I said I was going to tell you a story after the verse. Let me read to you. This is from Corey Tenboom. Maybe you're familiar with Corey, her story. She was a Dutch watchmaker who hid Jews during World War II and the Holocaust. She ended up going to a concentration camp where her sister Betsy died at the concentration camp. And the story I'm about to read is from her perspective after she gave a talk in 1947, two years after the war ended, on forgiveness. It's a story of relational beauty, you might say, or a story of honoring those who do not deserve honor. Here's what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, The shame of years ago walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, friend. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, 
who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. He went on. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, friend. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day needing to be forgiven, but I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives requires that we forgive those who have injured us. And I knew this not only as a commandment of God, but from my daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd had a home in Holland for the victims of the Nazi brutality. And it was so interesting. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars And those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I prayed silently. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down in my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had to struggle with the difficulty of daily forgiving. At least I wish I could say that was true. I wish I could say that I was that merciful and that charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me but they didn't. And if there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Friends, genuine faith in Jesus must produce beautiful relationships. And it requires going back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness every single day day to care for the vulnerable, those in authority, those who don't deserve honor. 
And every part of our being says that we can move on and drum it up ourselves and try a little harder and get there. And you go back to the gospel every single day. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I, Justin, am the foremost. And with our eyes fixed there, 2 Corinthians 3, we behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father, it is an awesome thing to think that you, the perfect Holy One, would send your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for us, that his blood would wash away our sins, that your wrath would be completely satisfied, that us, once your enemies, would be seated at your table. These things are too wonderful for us to comprehend. So we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we behold his glory, you would transform our cold, dead, selfish, prideful, arrogant, narcissistic hearts. Melt the ice and the snow in our hearts. Give us hearts of flesh that love and love deeply and fill a church that is marked by relational beauty because of what you have done on the cross. And with your finished work, compelling a radically different kind of community. It can only happen by your spirit, and we ask by your grace you would do it now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.